there was in our industry a very famous, powerful guy, uh, and he created a foundation for his company. And people would ask me about it, like, why don't you do that? I said, there will never be a foundation at Timberland, never, because that is not the job of a, of a for-profit CEO. My job is to deliver sustainable, proud profits every quarter for my shareholders. And so we are investing in City Year because we are convinced that that is going to make our brand more relevant and more valuable to our employees, to our investors, and to our consumers, and even our customers. Wow, that's amazing. The goal of this podcast is to explore the values and purpose driving organizations, the impact technology can have on humanity, and the humanity behind digitization. I'm Michael Eisenberg, husband, father, and grandfather, author, and venture capitalist at Olive, based in Tel Aviv. Join me on this journey. Hi, I'm Jeff Swartz, and I'm an unemployed uh, boot salesman. And my core value is a deep, true belief in the redemptive possibility of the human race. It is a pleasure to introduce to Invested my friend Jeff Swartz, the former president and CEO of Timberland, and as he likes to say, an unemployed boot salesman uh, today. Jeff Swartz is also co-founder and chair of Maoz. He served 15 years as the CEO of Timberland, a global brand of footwear and apparel some of you may have heard of, and hopefully you wore. (laughs) While at Timberland, Jeff incorporated a social agenda within the business agenda. He led public and private partnerships with several social change organizations, including City Year, where he served as chair for 10 years, Share Our Strength, the Harlem Children's Zone, and the Climate Group. In 2011, Jeff led the sale of Timberland to the VF Corporation. Since then, he invests all of his energies to advance sustainable socioeconomic change, and I'll add human change, aimed to have a real impact in Israel and the United States. Jeff holds an MBA from Dartmouth University and a BA in Comparative Literature from Brown University. Jeff lives now in Jerusalem, where he moved a few years ago from Boston. He is married to Debbie, who I can attest to is... Can I say? Yeah. They're a strong partner here. <laughs> and they have three married sons and a growing number of beloved grandchildren Amen. who lovingly call Jeff Zadie. You bet. Which is the Yiddish word for grandpa. If you would like to follow Jeff on social media, you're out of luck. <laughs> um, he doesn't have any social media accounts. And uh, we'll get to talk more about that uh, soon. If you want to actually follow Jeff, Take a couple of energy bars in the morning and keep running because it's really hard to keep up. And with that, I'm trying to remember, you know, the team setting up the podcast asked me, how do we know each other? And and I think I remember, but I'm not 100% sure. So how do we know each other? I remember when I met you the first time, you showed up in, you showed up in a, a, like a station wagon in the Shetach way up north. It was a... Uh, the Shetach is like, you know, like the hills and the, the badlands. Yeah, yeah like, like, like exactly, not the city. Uh, and, and I remember horses. This is a terror of mine. There were horses. It was a Hashomer Chahadash day. And uh, Yoel Zilberman, who's the founder of this organization, was doing his thing. And it involved me getting on a horse. And I remember you were the only one that would speak to me in English, which I was grateful for, but that was it. It was like, hi, nice to meet you. And then you climbed on the horse like you were born on a horse. I was not born on a horse. I promise you. I asked my children. You pulled it off and I'm still, still recovering from the trauma, not physically, but emotionally. That was not a good day for me. All right. So we met out in the, uh, in the fields on horses and, uh, that was a day where we were both at a volunteer organization, which I know you spend a lot of your time doing. We'll, we'll come to that in a second. But before we get there, how does your day start? 
I know it starts somewhere in the early morning, middle of the night, but, but, but take me through your day. I like getting up. I like getting up early because what time is early? So like, you know, if it's much before four, I get, I get some stick from the boss, uh, but I, I, I'm kind of out of bed around four. And the reason is it used to be before all the technology stuff, it used to be an hour or two where honestly it wasn't self-indulgent to not be connected. You just weren't. Timberland's business was all around the world. So it wasn't that folks weren't awake, but you needed a telephone like a landline. And so, and eventually there was Blackberries and it got less lovely, but from four to six was kind of time where you could learn quietly, which was something really precious to me. And then like I used to do my workout when I was a younger human being earlier in the morning, cause it just felt like you were not alone, but you weren't on the clock. It was like a time to breathe and think a little bit. So I get up here in Jerusalem. I, I sort of follow the same routine. I learn and then I work out and then I, you know, pray and go to, go to work. And what do you learn? Study at four o'clock in the morning. I'm a sacred text guy. Um, I'm a self-taught fellow. I didn't, I grew up in, in that formal tradition, but, uh, when I was, when I was in my thirties, which is right around when electricity was invented, uh, I, uh, I ran the New York marathon. That was a long time ago. Um, and I don't want to bore you. I but. watched the New York Marathon for what it's worth a few times because I grew up across the park from, from the New York Marathon, yeah. But I was, I don't know why, but it was just like a, a goal that needed to be achieved. I don't know why. So I ran. And when I got to the end, Debbie said to me the equivalent of like, I, I know the way you, you, you do it. You, you, you invest in this outcome. It's the most precious thing on earth. And then the instant you achieve it, it's like it never existed before. And you're looking around for what comes next. And she said, why don't you try something that doesn't have a terminus? Why don't you, why don't you think about this idea of learning? And well, I was a pretty good learner, like in classical work hard, take a test, get a grade. But that's not what she was talking about. She was saying out loud, like, what if you actually opened yourself up to something that is differently delimited? And so she can't explain why to this date. Uh, she gave me this box full of books, which included... Uh, a, middle, a medieval commentator on the Torah, uh, the Ramban in English. And I took a look at it. I was a literature major, as you said, and I was always interested in things written. And I could not believe, honestly, could not believe that the text, I had read the Bible, right? Because isn't every Western kid read the Bible? So I'd read it in English, but he wanted to stop and look at the words and think about what, why this word and not that word. And I was, I had studied James Joyce that way in university, but no one had ever even suggested to me that this wasn't a flat text, that this was a, a rich text. And I fell, I fell into a, what do you want to call it? Another galaxy. And so since then, 1991, I sort of start every day by learning. For how many hours? <laughs> it depends. It depends. Uh, on a day when I'm visiting with you, I, I, I tighten down the, the, that because I said to myself, I got to be on time and I got to continue my learning with Michael in a different way. Oh, no. <laughs> so you moved to Israel two or so or three years ago now at the height of the pandemic. Uh, and we talked about it when you were, when you were moving. But why did you move? I came to Israel in 1974 when I was 14 years old uh, with my parents who were and are Zionists uh, in the, in the sense where that term used to be a, a term of pride, not a term of fear. 
and, and not a term of politics even. It was, it was, a, it was a, an ideology of, uh, that was, it was a big deal to them. Um, I grew up in a house where mom lit candles on Friday night and dad opened this big black book to one page and sang a song and we took a, he did take a sip of some very sweet uh, wine that was kept in the refrigerator because uh, that's nobody ever wanted it. It wouldn't have gone bad anyway. Probably. Exactly right. So it, was, it was nuclear. That stuff could have. You know, it's the, like, the, like the kiddish ceremony <laughs> and Jewish Friday night dinner tables. <laughs> that wine is like spent nuclear reactors <laughs> fuels that they'll never they'll never decompose. But and then we would do whatever we did. Um, and so it was, it was it a Jewish household in that sense. It was. But mom dragging me to like Israel Independence Day marches when I was a little kid. That that's the last time I've gone to any kind of a out, outside protest. I got to learn from that. But anyways, m- mom dragged me to that. And then in 1974, we came here. And so you and I've talked about this before. There's what do you know and how do you know? And I don't know what I knew, but I know how I knew that there was a question, a real one, which is what does it mean to be at home? And in, at 14 years old, I didn't have the language for that, but in a place where I didn't speak a single word, where I couldn't read the alphabet, where I, I couldn't have not fit in less, I was home. And I knew that in 1974, and I've been coming home since then. And along the way, I'd made a deal with my dad. I'd work with him in business because he wanted to run Timberland. After he finished, we, we bought the other half of the business from his brother. They had been 50-50 partners. And dad wanted to run the business, and I was son. I didn't care about business, but I care about my dad. So sure. Yeah. How about five years? And then I go to Israel and he said, sure. Great. 30 years later, you know, there you came. There you came. Today. I actually uh, tweeted, which you wouldn't have seen because you're not on social media. Correct. Uh, you know, what, what, what are, uh, some experiences, things that we can't find words to describe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I have an increasing feeling that with all the words people are saying out there, all you know, people are talking way too much in social media and, and and saying things they don't think about. There's actually a growing number of experiences that we've lost words or can't find words for. I feel like I must have read this sometime by William Sapphire in his own language column in the New York Times, mm. which as a kid I read pretty religiously. So uh, you were the CEO of Timberland. It was a family business. You took over as CEO, did it for for 15 years. It was started by your grandfather. Nathan Swartz, a shoemaker from the Ukraine. I guess he was never unemployed, being a shoemaker from the Ukraine until he had to immigrate to the United States, and then he was employed, unemployed. Correct. Right. And so he founded what became this company that you sold ultimately for for $2 billion. Take me through, like it's a family business. How was that decision to, to sell the company, and, 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 and why did you sell it at the end of the day? It's a great question. Um, I used to drive home uh, in the days where car phones were like, you know, you take two hands to take the receiver off of the desk. Right. Exactly right. And I used to call my Nana Ruth. That was Papa Nathan's widow. They came to my high school graduation in 1978. At least we know you graduated. Yeah. They came to celebrate that. The, this is the first one in, in the generations that, that they had like that. And um, on the way back to, uh, to Florida, David, my brother and I drove them, my dad and my uncle bought them a new car, Buick, something or other. And we drove it to New York. We stayed in Harlem at the Holiday Inn. And the next morning we drove to, to Crystal City to put them in the auto train. David and I got them to there. We had breakfast together, gave them a hug and a kiss. 
got on the plane and flew back to Boston. And my dad was waiting at the plane, which is unusual because mom should have been at the plane. It's work day. He had a suitcase. I said, what's the matter? I said, ah, a little bit of an automobile accident. It's, I'm sure everything's okay. So a, a, a drunk driver crossed over at 10 o'clock in the morning and wiped him out. And, uh, uh, and so, um, my grandfather was in the hospital and I said to dad, Look, I want to come. He said, no, no, he doesn't want you to come. He doesn't want you to see you like this. He's, he's okay. He's going to be fine. And so for my graduation present at 18 years old, I was going to Israel to, to tramp for the summer to uh, hitchhike around the country. So I came and I spoke to my grandfather. My father held the phone. He couldn't speak. He said, dad says, yeah, he's got like a tube or two. It's no big deal. And my dad's with me, very straight. So I believed him and he believed what he's telling me. And then I came here, a completely secular guy, hitchhiking around the country. When I came up to Jerusalem, uh, I went, funny story on Friday night, blah, blah, blah. But on Sunday, we had made a deal that I call home every second Sunday. So I went to the post office in Jerusalem and, you know, you place your, your order for the phone call and it went straight through. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's like five o'clock in the morning. I had gotten there because I figured it takes two hours to get the call. It went straight through. And my mother answers on the second ring. And I was like, hi. She said, dad needs to talk to you. And uh, she said, he said to me, we've been trying to find you. Um, we can't hold the funeral any longer. Uh, your uncle says it's, it's tomorrow morning. And I said, dad, it's like, you know, it's, it's noon here. And, and, and the, the, I, what am I supposed to do? He said, do the best you can. So my stuff was in the hostel in the city and locked. So I sat down. I don't know if it's okay to say, but uh, just you and me talking, right? I sat down on the seat, uh, like on the, the sidewalk outside Shari Yafo, and I started to cry. And some Mishmarak Vul kid said to me, Border police. Oh, sorry, sorry. The, okay. Yeah, the border police guy said to me, What's the matter? And I said, My grandfather died. And he said, Okay. He got the hostel to open so I could get my passport. They put me in the Jeep. They drove me on. The, the Route 1, this is, this is 1978, right? It wasn't open. We drove out onto the tarmac. They held the El Al flight. This young guy took his gun off, handed it to the driver, and he came up the stairs with me onto the plane. And they had two seats for us, and we sat there together. And we flew to Boston, uh, to New York. And only the land of Israel would take some nobody. They didn't know who, who I was. or It wasn't, didn't matter. It's like this kid's got to get home for his grandfather's funeral. And so they... They did. They got me home. When I got to, uh, to New York, I had to run to get the connection uh, to go to Boston. And I said, will you tell me your name? And he said, no. And I, said, but we, I said, no, but I need to know your name. He said, why? I said, because how can I write you like a note to say thank you? And he said, I don't need a note. And he turned away. And I'm not as powerful as you are, but I, okay connections, I can't find this guy. He doesn't want to be found. In Jerusalem, they would say it was Elijah the prophet who turned up to come find you. There's truth to that, my friend. That's an astounding story. It's an astounding story. It, it, <laughs> it, puts, it, it puts into words or descriptive story things you can't figure out about national culture. And, you know, we met, as you said before, at the Shomer Hadash, the new guardians in the field, you know, on the back of all their shirts and jackets, it says, I am my brother's keeper. And it's a, it's a thing you can't actually put into words what it means to be your brother's keeper and that, you know, you have mutual responsibility for for just another person who was crying on a stoop outside of the Jaffa Gate. Just another person. And uh, you're not just another person to me, but at the time to him you were. I, I, I was just another person, not even to me. And the truth is, it, that was the kids talking about, the, the little kids talking about, like they learn what is, um, what is the kindness of truth. 
And they say the kindness of truth, chesed shalemet, you can only do for the dead. Very nice uh, religious notion because there's, there's, no, there's no recompense. There's no payback. Right. But this was chesed shalemet. This was national chesed shalemet. Uh, I don't know how it happened that the plane was solid. I don't know how we got to drive on it. I have no idea. And I'd, I, I, I'd, as my friend Springsteen would say, I got debts no honest man could pay. But as a consequence, I went to work to, for my dad. And so there we were doing our thing, but the deal was five years and come on, I want to go to Israel and I don't know what I want to do. I just want to be in Israel. So then we got involved and it was, uh, because it's all our family's uh, net worth and um, people kept coming to say, let's buy the company and dad say, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. In, in the early, in, in the mid nineties, he decided he was ready to retire. Don't know if in fact, he was, but he said he was. And so he went to Florida and I fell for it. I shouldn't have. Um, but um, through time, it became a, a source of pain for both of us because dad spent most of his time in my office when he wasn't running the world. And now he wasn't in my office. So I didn't have him interrupting the vital work I was doing, but I also missed the heck out of him. But then I realized I couldn't talk to him about business because every time I talked to him about business, I was making him anxious. He wasn't here to fix it. So he was in Florida with my mother driving him crazy or vice versa. <laughs> and so I realized I shouldn't talk to him about it. And so I started to get differently lonely. And so uh, I talked to him about it quietly when, at the barbecue in Florida. And he said, you know, he's a practical man, Michael. He said like, well, it has to be a fair price. I said, yeah, 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 I get all that stuff. And then they called uh, and... Uh, I called him up and I said, do you want me to have the conversation? And he said, well, as long as it's a fair price. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm asking a Jeff and dad question. And, and he said, grab it. And I said, okay. <laughs> so we negotiated with, uh, for a, a long time. And when it was came time to actually uh, make the sale, the day of this transition, we had this Timberland service event. And he said to me, <laughs> he said to me, uh, I spent 50 years of my life here. And I had no idea what this meant to me until sort of now. And more importantly, I had no idea what, what this family meant to the company. He said, I think we've done the right thing, but I don't think this is simple. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you'll figure it out. You'll see what happens. And I think he's right. I think a family business is different. Uh, there's good things and bad things about it, but he was there saying, some of the good that comes from being a family enterprise is going to end now. And he was right. And so that's how your dad felt in almost a rational way, understanding that the power of family animates the values of the business. But how did you feel the next day? <laughs> it's a very uh, powerful question. I, I felt as I always do, which is a, a little scared um, at least because I am I learned from my dad, debt is a bad thing. You don't want to be in arrears. My grandfather told me the same thing. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, and the biggest mistake I made at Timberland and the whole time I ran the place, I got us into a debt crisis in the mid-90s and almost lost the business. So a good experience of not the euphemism of a balance sheet, but like one that hits you in the head for 18 months. But so Word I was- Word to the wise in a higher interest rate environment that we're living through right now. <laughs> I never met a debt I wouldn't like to pay. But dad used to carry his checkbook to the mailbox and he would be writing checks as he walked back for the bills. Hysterical. Um, AT&T, my dad's name is Sydney. 
but AT&T transposed it. So his account was Disney Swartz. It was <laughs> awesome. And so he was writing a Disney Swartz check once a month to AT&T and taking care of business. Um, so the m- morning after I woke up in fear, uh, like, um, what, what can I do with the resources that are lent to me in, in order to justify my space on earth? And that, that was a good feeling because it was too easy inside the environment of the business to know this is what you're supposed to be doing on Monday morning. When you're not sure what you're supposed to be doing, you're like, Oh my gosh, not what am I supposed to be doing, but who am I supposed to be? Which is why I knew I had to come here because this is a place about doing, but it's also a place that, that is about being. So Timberland was known as a socially conscious business. Uh, the company wrote, we strive to create a culture built on giving back and building relationships with our communities, which I know is a big value of your family as well. And it doesn't seem to me, and I know you pretty well, that you've actually codified these values in, in any way. And so how did they persist in the business? And how did you think about the relationship of your own personal values to those of the company? Those are great questions. I, I, I was learning how to understand the system of, of halacha, of, of Jewish law, of Jewish law, of boundary conditions and vision. And so really my first real experiment with that in an external way was in this context of how does our enterprise be accountable for our social impact? And so I tried boundary conditions one of the things that we believed in was the idea that we are a productive force in the communities that we live and work in. And so we can share our strength. And so a thousand manifestations, but uh, President Bush asked the question, a lot of other CEOs asked the question, what are the rules about community service at Timberland? And I said, no religion, no politics. Those are the boundary conditions, go. And they said, well, but don't you tell people what to do? And I said that, no, we create boundary conditions and we trust that people have the the instinct, this is important and passionate to me. We did talk about values, humanity, humility, integrity, and excellence. And people, you say, those fight each other. And I said, yep, right. That's sort of a Jewish Rabbi Soloveitchik, not, not dialectic that gets synchronized in a nice tonic, dominic music thing like ta-da. No, live in the tension of humanity and, and excellence. Those fight each other. And Just so- Just interject for a second, the references to Rabbi- Joseph Dove Soloveitchik's uh, monumental work called The Lonely Man of Faith, where he describes Adam 1 and Adam 2 from chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. Uh, Adam 1 is someone who exercises dominion uh, and creative spirit and creativity, and Adam 2 lives alone in the abyss of the world in kind of a metaphysical way. That's the reference. That's the reference, but you do it. Wow. Where were you when I was trying to read the book? All these Greek words. What is he doing? You are special. You are. But you were going on. So how, how did how did the the family values and your personal values guide you there and make the business better? Um, or did it not make the business better? First, it did. Um, there's just this. You know, it's, I'm gonna I'm not gonna be able to prove it with a regression, but I I can tell you, like in the in the deepest form of conviction, we made boots, and so. The, the cost of the, of the most important product we made, the single SKU, that was sort of the basis of, the, of all of our revenues, whatever, it was, it was over a billion dollars in revenues and big 
part of the profit and revenue came from this one boot that my grandfather originally designed with my dad. On a good day, that boot was landed, finished, all cost at about 30 bucks. And when we sold the boot out the door at round 200 bucks, there was a lot of margin for the, for the um, wholesale, wholesaler, that was Timberland, and the retailer, or it could have been us, it could have been Nordstrom, or it could have been somebody else. Um, and there was, it was, there was a lot of margin, there was a lot of sustained margin. But if you try to understand where that sustained margin came from, uh, some of it's brand, right? It does matter. If, you, if you're just making a utility argument, I can sell you a $30 boot for 40 bucks. If you're making a brilliant brand argument, you can make 30 be 120, even 140 in our space, right? Four times landed cost, is, there's room for that. And if you look across most of the brands, the great brands that you know and recognize in that crappy industry that I grew up in, 4X on landed's pretty good, but we were 6X on landed. So where did that come from? I believe there was boot and there was a brand and there was belief. I believe that, that that's it, great. BBB build back better is now boot brand and belief. I love that. But we live boot brand and belief. I got t-shirts it off of BBB. Oh, this is much better. Please, boot God. brand yeah, and belief. That's a separate story. Yeah. I got the t-shirts. They're almost as old as the president, but that's a separate <laughs> point, right? That's <laughs> true. And the truth is the t-shirts have done better over time, but that's a separate point. But boot brand and belief is something that, that we talked about at Timberland. And so you want to do the very best you could with a boot. But when you say, what do you mean by the very best? Well, it's made out of leather. Okay, but can you make that leather point to and drive the question of belief? And we did. It's not, leather has, a, there's a reason what for it. What did you want people to believe in? I wanted, um, we said that we exist in order to help people make their difference in the world. That was our business mission, to help people make their difference in the world. I, and I used to say in brand terms, if you notice Timberland when you're out hiking, we failed. We don't want to be present to your experience in the outdoors. We want you to be present to your experience in the outdoors, whether you're a firefighter or whether you're hiking with your children or your grandchildren. Like, be outdoors and breathe. Stretch your imagination. But you'll, you'll want to have a pair of boots that don't disappoint you and a backpack that works, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wanted the boot to be connected to this experience of the outdoors. We wanted this experience of the outdoors to challenge your view of what's possible because the outdoors exists in Manhattan and it exists in Montana. And we, we knew, we didn't invent that truth, but we knew that when people were in that truth, they were more themselves. They were more powerful. If you, and we believed, and I still do, that if, in this one narrow sense, I'm a Jeffersonian. He, he argued that if, the, if we provide sufficient information the yeoman farmer will make the right decision. And I believe that. I believe that this Pizzella Melochim, note that there's a, there's a spark Godly of godliness. Spark. It, it's inside people. And if we get the big words and the big noise out of the way and call on the goodness in people, they'll see a kid crying on the, on the sidewalk and say, how can I help? I believe that. You know, I think the world actually divides into people who fundamentally believe people are good and people who believe, fundamentally believe people are bad and therefore... Yeah, unfortunately, we create a lot of regulation around thinking that people are bad, but in fact, 99% of the people in the world are actually good people. And if we bring out the best in them, they'll do, they'll do amazing work. But I, I want to come back to the point because I think the way you describe so passionately what happened at Timberland, it was very, very aligned uh, with the business model, which is I sold boots that gave you, or backpacks that gave you a great outdoor experience, and I believed in you to be empowered to go do your best work by kind of embracing this kind of outdoorsiness and, and, and nature. There's a lot of corporate social responsibility today, which is, excuse the term, I'll pollute here and plant trees there. Or, you know, I'll do damage to people by giving them diabetes over here 
And, you know, then I'll contribute to the National Kidney Foundation over here. And that's got this fancy name called CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. I have some other choice three-letter algorithms <laughs> to think about it. CYA might be one of them. Mm. Uh, so how do you think about corporate social, so, social responsibility kind of writ large and, you know, and, and what it's become? Uh, you know, Larry Fink's built the kind of largest uh, money management tool on the planet, company on the planet, BlackRock, you know, and they got behind this ESG thing, which has now become Bonton. And, and nobody can even measure ESG. You have these outrageous, ridiculous uh, metrics for ESG. No one knows what the hell it is. So how do you think about corporate social responsibility, ESG, CYA? I had an uh, executive here in Israel, uh, a, a woman that I respect a lot. She said, I really appreciate the uh, regulatory kind of um, paroxysms that come. You, you look at this industry and you don't trust us. You think we're all uh, bad corporate people. And so you pass all these laws uh, and you think it's going to make it easier and fairer. Uh, and actually, she said, if I wasn't a good person, I'd simply laugh out loud because I have a very big legal department. And so when you pass all these, these lovely regulations, ESG, ABC, PDQ, CYA, I can comply. The little guy who's actually trying to run a productive business, the small and middle, medium-sized businesses, they don't have big legal departments. They don't have workarounds. And so the, these kind of draped overlays of self-righteous stuff, it, to me, it's, it's, it's like dropping a rag on the fire. It, it stifles the creativity. There was, in our industry, a very famous, powerful guy, uh, and he created a foundation for his company. And people would ask me about it, like, why don't you do that? I said, there will never be a foundation at Timberland, never, because that is not the job of a, of a for-profit CEO. My job is to deliver sustainable, proud profits every quarter for my shareholders. And so we are investing in City Year because we are convinced that that is going to make our brand more relevant and more valuable to our employees, to our investors, and to our consumers, and even our customers. Our customers, by the way, were the hardest, the, 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 the retailers in the middle. Yeah. Uh, they had- Little connection. They, and, but like on 9-11, Mamash, on, on, on the day of 9-11, we were in Manhattan. Uh, and we came out of the fancy hotel, and the security team called me and said, you know, we want you to get out of Manhattan. I said, that's good. We're going to the Bronx anyways. So we went to PS11 in the Bronx, the Clara Barton School. It's now closed in Richie Torres' district. And there was- Richie Torres is a Democratic congressman from the Bronx. From the poorest district in the United States. And a Congress, wonderful guy. And a wonderful guy. Uh, congressman Torres probably wasn't even born then. He's so young, but who knows? <laughs> uh, we were there serving at PS11. Who's we? There was 15, 20 Timberland people and about 15, 20 retailers, local retailers. And we watched the towers fall and we told those kids that there are two kinds of grownups. There's the grownups that want to destroy the world. As you said before, and you're right. There's grownups that want to destroy the world. And there's grownups that want to build the world. And I told those kids we would come back every 9-11 until they graduated. Me and the retailers. And we did. We went back every single year. Wow. And, but that... Those retailers knew that their business was better because they weren't selling stuff. They were actually, it, my dad used to say this when we go into restaurants, he'd walk in and go, this is not going to be a good meal. I'd say, why? He said, the owner's not here. I said, how can you tell? He said, you can smell it. I said, dad, how do you know? He said, he doesn't, there's, there's no belief here. This is like a place to get, I can get a hamburger at home. I want a place where the guy wants to make me a hamburger. It's, it's his hamburger. And so I think that the question of values is it's self-interested. It's, it, it, it is, and it's, it's not self-executing because I agree with you. I, I pollute over here and I, and I appease over there. I don't believe in that carbon offsets. It's like, oi, it's, it, didn't we have like a revolution, Martin Luther, about this idea of, of, of buying forgiveness yeah. as opposed to earning it? So you and I together are invested in a company called Rise Up, Aleph 
and Swartz Enterprises or the Swartz family or, <laughs> or Jeff Inc. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rise Up for our listeners is a company that promotes financial efficacy. They started in Israel because, as Yuval Samet, the founder and former chief product officer of Klarna, the Swedish payments juggernaut, uh, liked to say, uh, I grew up poor in Israel. I came to solve that problem of financial self-efficacy uh, in Israel first, and now it's expanding, of course, to uh, the UK and to Spain and to Holland. I think Yuval is today actually in London. Wow. Yeah, with our first uh, set of customers there. Wow. So uh, Rise Up is a cash flow management tool that initially appears in your WhatsApp. You connect your credit card and your bank account, and it, using AI, learns to tell you how much money you have to spend till the end of the month. It just uh, remind, reminds you. Now, this is a tool, to your point. It's a utility. It's like a good boot. But at the same time, this massive community of tens of thousands of people have formed around this, almost such that it's a movement to enable people to become uh, financially independent, go from debtors to savers, and then investors. And thousands and thousands and thousands of Israeli families have already come out of debt uh, due to Rise Up. What attracted you to Rise Up? And why do you think I, why do you think it's such an important company in Israel and globally at this point? So one thing you taught me, one of the many things you've taught me is it's about who, not about what. And so the first thing that attracted me to Rise Up was you. The second thing that attracted me to Rise Up- How did we work there? No, no but uh, the second thing that attracted me to, to Rise Up was Yuval. And, and it had a weird name. It wasn't Rise Up. It was like some weird thing, tech, some techie thing. Yeah, it's a bad name. It was a bad name. <laughs> yeah, like the dude is focused on- Israelis like, don't roll out of bed and like preach branding. It's oh, not very yeah, Israeli. Yeah, some are missing from the culture, but okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there someday. Um, but the story of, of sing, we talked about single moms. He, we talked about, um, what it takes to make it in the world as a single mom. He knows this story that he knows this narrative experience, uh, of what it's like to be a, a, a marginalized player in the world of finance. And what does that mean? And so, the question of agency sounds very intellectual, but w- when the when the day is done, what you said before is right. Um, <laughs> for profit, the profit instinct is amoral. It's not immoral, nor is it moral. It's amoral. It's uh, buy low, sell high. It's it. it there's a, a a mechanism, a generative mechanism of the marketplace that, and and the regulation of that. Is sits in two places, right? It sits in regulatory frameworks, at, which, as you point out, um, are developed too slowly. They are sclerotic on their best days. They are political on their worst days. And so the, the net effect of them is they neither regulate nor nor incubate or accelerate. They simply obstruct. They don't they don't create the moral cast that you wish the marketplace would adopt. And so that pretty squarely leaves it back to, to you as the operator. You sit there and you, you ask yourself, um, what do I do? Yuval told stories in the formation of this idea about people rising up. Now, to me, that's, 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 it's not noble. That's exactly what I told you about. He wants people to make their difference in the world. He's not telling you how to spend your money. He's not telling you, he's not preaching at you. He's saying, let me put you in a place where you can make moral choices. And you know what? At the end of the day, if we can put you in a position where you can make a broader selection of choices, 
world's going to be a better place. Is it a fintech company? I guess so. But to me, it's actually, it it is a releasing of, it's back to core value. It's a path to redemption. And the path to redemption doesn't lie through me. It lies through us. Human potential, believing the human being's ability to write themselves. You just got to give them the cues. Correct. I think if you give people the opportunity to do the right thing for themselves and for their families, in general, that will lead to redemption. I think, by the way, the interesting thing about RiseUp in this case is that people pay upfront for a financial service. They pay a subscription fee. People subscribe to their own betterment, to their own improvement. And then this community forms around this of tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. That's rabid. And they kind of come together to not so make a change for themselves, but to make a change for other people and welcome them into that community in order to make uh, the ongoing change. Do, Do you see that in multiple businesses or is this sui generis? I think the question that you raise is profound. At Timberland, we negotiated a license with you because we sold you one pair of boots, maybe a pair of shoes. We had um, the only, it was a license. You, you gave me 180 or $200 for a pair of boots and I gave you a guarantee for life. And so if you found something through time that disappointed you, you would find that I stood behind it. But I didn't have regular intercourse with you. You bought your pair of boots. You're off into the world. I made them. Hopefully, you didn't need to come back. I don't want you to come back and uh, and tell me something didn't work. And so I had a a site license. He has a bolder vision. He has a vision of subscription. And the notion of subscription has built into it a different accountability. When I was involved in the political world in in America, not politically, but when when Timberland was doing social change things, I I I ended up dancing with government. You can't not. There... They're interested in they're interested in democracy as a license. You vote for me once every four years. See you later. Goodbye. Subscription's different. At Timberland, the cash register tells you every six hours what trust you have and don't have what you have and haven't earned with a consumer. The rise up power. Oh, he's fundamentally talking about trust as a subscription. When when he says, "Please pay me." Empowerment is a subscription also, right? It, it's exactly right. That's why it's such a big winner, Michael, because it's, it's both things. He's saying, please trust me. If I disappoint you, you, you will cut me off. Then he says, look to your left and look to your right. There's another citizen who's in a similar circumstance. Trust them too. Wow, that is a brilliant business strategy because he's, he's actually syndicating trust, not just between the enterprise and him, but across a community. And a, a community has more strength than an enterprise. So I have this thesis, as you know, that values create economic value. They create value. And some people have accused it of being kind of social mumbo-jumbo in the private sector. But here are two examples, and there's more I'm sure we can point to, of where real values create dollar value. Correct. And and more profit. Um, but it leaves you open to the saying that this is kind of virtue signaling. And I'm sure, you know, at Timberland, when you were doing uh, sustainability, people said, I don't really believe in that. They're manufacturing these boots, but that's virtue signaling. How do you respond to that? Were you really doing work on the environment? Did it really tie to the business or was it just some? So here's an interesting fact. So uh, when does the United States require by law that food companies disclose ingredients and calories and all that stuff? I would have guessed it's like 1927, but it isn't. It's more like 2001 or 2002 before the FDA says you have to do this. So now I look like the lunatic that I truly am because when when I decided I was going to put a nutritional label on Timberland boots in 2008, I think, I thought I was against a tradition that was 100 years old. 
go show what an idiot I am. It was like brand new. And so the woman who is Timberland's general counsel marks in my office and goes, if you put a nutrition label on Timberland boots showing, you know, sustainable energy, child labor, stuff like that, she said, you're going to go to jail. And, and, I, and I looked at her and I said, why? She said, because you can't prove this and the, the data sources are incomplete. I said, Danette, come on, breathe. She said, I'm telling you, you're going to jail. And I said, you're frustrated because you're the general counsel. That's going to go in your resume. CEO go to jail. That's probably not good for you. She said, yeah. I said, my view is it wouldn't be a bad thing. And she said, why? I said, I think Debbie and the kids would be very pleased if I was out of circulation for a little bit. I want kosher food in my gemara. Leave me alone. And she said, does that mean we're going to do this? I said, I don't mean to break it to you, but it's already happening. So I literally put, first, I was respectful, Michael. I went to our competitors and I said, let's do an industry label. They said, no. I went to the FDA and they said, what are you nuts? You want us to regulate this? And then I went to our customers and said, just want you to know I'm going to do it. And they said, why? And I said, because I believe that if the customer, the consumer has the information, they will create a pull. So the problem with virtue signaling is it takes advantage of the laziness thing. If I pile data at you, they think, like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I tried, I tried to form a question. Does this matter to you? And I remember um, there was a guy, it was a Nordstrom family member who called me up. And he says, you are creating a problem and I want it solved. I said, what's the problem? He said, you know, the rule at Nordstrom is that when you come into the men's shoe department, you sit down, you say, I'd like a pair of hiking boots. The sales associate brings you, of course, what you want to see, but he has to bring you an alternative to like a pair of sneakers because they want to make two sales. They're the best in the, they used to be the best in the space. He said, so now what's happening is the guy's sitting on the fitting stool. He's got the Timberland box. He got the boot he wanted. And he's like, why isn't there a label in the Nike box? He says, you are creating a problem. And I said, I feel like that's a good thing. And he said, I'm glad you do. I want you to feel like that's a bad thing because I'm your customer and I'm mad at you. I said, okay, virtue signaling, it, it shakes me. It makes me want, my hands want to shake. Um, when, when we The difference were, is you took a risk with your own money, right? There's a lot of virtue signaling that doesn't take a risk with, takes a risk with other people's money. Correct. Projects your values and somebody else's money. You took a risk with your own money here. And I wanted people to say, look, the, the label said that 6% of the energy used to make a terminal boot is renewable. That means 94% is not. And so, but that's just a fact. It was true. And by the way, that never going to change until the consumer says, the consumer, not the government. The government says, you've got to do this like Britain did this battery thing the other day. It's like it was, Obama did another battery thing. When governments do battery things, they don't go anywhere. Battery things, bad things happen to batteries. Tesla brought electrification. Timberland brought disclosure. That's not virtuous because they take the risk of their own money on it. That's correct. All these organizations on the side that then scream green and scream this, they don't count. They got no skin in the game. No skin in the game. So ultimately the difference between virtue signaling and values creating value is do you have financial skin in the game? Correct. I believe that. I do too. And, uh, what do you sell to all these yellers, all these people on the side saying, you know, green this, green that, but have no skin in the game or, you know, aren't even willing to get on planes to go do something about it. I know you went to Haiti after the earthquake and uh, the horrible earthquake in Haiti and became a real integrated part of that community. And you had real skin in the game uh, for that. So how do you deal with the noisemakers on the side who are coming in the name of values, but they create actually negative financial value? I think that's the right question, and I wish I knew the answer. I, I was doing one of those around-the-world trips, uh, and I landed in London. And then, Never did one, so I wouldn't know. Oh, we are good. Don't I, I urge you not to do it. Yeah. I think I'd come from Tokyo. It was early days when 
the British Airways had just been able to fly across what was then this former Soviet Union. Now, now it's the present Soviet Union. God knows what it is now. Um, <laughs> so I got to London and BA 215 to Boston. That was my flight. Man, I'm going home to see my kids. But I stopped off because I was supposed to make a speech uh, about the environment to business CEOs. And it's just not enough sleep, not enough food, not enough nothing. And then Vice President Gore uh, was speaking before me and I knew him and I liked him and I respected him. And he made the speech and it was like, the end is coming. We're all going to die. You know, that's like doom and gloom and green and ugh. my favorite. Yeah. And he finished and, the, and he's a great speaker and, and, and the, the audience was like, ugh. they were slumped down in their seat, which is how I felt before I started. And I think I, I could smell myself. I smelled like an airplane and I came out on the stage and I, the vice president, so I'm sure he's, I didn't even cross my mind. So I, I, I walked out there and I thought, hmm. And I said, okay. So that's, th that was inspiring. No, actually that wasn't inspiring. That was terribly depressing. I know I'm going to die. I don't need to be reminded. I know the environment's coming to an end. I, what am I supposed to do about that? And so I did something very impolitic, Michael. I looked at the room and I said, um, question, anybody here running a real business that doesn't want to cash on cash, capital investment return in a year, anybody here doesn't want one, raise your hand and then be prepared to explain yourself. So they look at me because it was not very corporate. And I, and I said, so I can keep this short, which is good for you and good for me. Change the effing light bulb. And I probably f sort of stretched out the adjective a little bit longer than I might have. I don't think I said effing. I, but I think I actually said a bad word. I just overtired and I realized, ah, in a British audience too. And they looked at me like, what? And I said, let me just tell you the story of the lighting at the Timberland headquarters. We took low ballast sodium overhead lights we switched them out for high LED, blah, 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 the quality of light, blah, 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 blah. Look, it is a fact that we just took 16 trillion tons of crap out of the air. Interesting. But I'm telling you, in electricity savings, cash on cash, this is an annuity in my ceiling. I'm, and so I don't know if the world's coming to an end. I love the vice president, but that's over my pay grade. What's, what I'm charged with is to earn return from my shareholders, change the damn light bulbs. And I walked off after a 10 minute speech and Here's the problem. It was a 10-minute speech. It was supposed to be like 45 minutes. I walked off into the wings and I run into a Secret Service agent. And I thought, oh, no, is he still there? <laughs> the vice president says to me, that was passionate. I said, yes, sir. Nice to see you, sir. Oh, my God, let me kill myself. But that was a conversation. What I want to say to the yellers is we're talking about the wrong thing. Like, what can I do? What's the agency that's in my hands? And that was a city or lesson. Right, that's the famous starfish story. The little girl on the beach with her grandfather, all the starfish get washed in. She bends down, she tosses one back. He says, the sun is out, sweetie. They're all gonna die. She said, not that one. Not that one. I put that one back in and I... I, I so we did 15 things about the environment, 13 of which were probably shoveling the tide with a spoon. They, it was important to do it. We changed the way the industry thought about it. And look, you taught me this again. This is the world of technology, which I didn't and still don't understand, which is that open source is a powerful thing. The reason Timberland got it, was successful with solar energy was because the nasty people of Patagonia came to laugh at us. The, literally, the, the guy came in the front door the CEO, not not Ivan Schwernard, was a tough guy in his own right. This guy was the, currently the CEO, the, was currently the CEO, and he said. Uh, you know, how come there's no solar here? I said, we're in New Hampshire, handsome. And I, I said, it's like the sun <laughs> is two days a year. 
And he says, and, but now he was embarrassed. So he said, well, in Ventura, which is where they're headquartered, we have uh, the California program of blah, 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 blah. And the Timberland guys are watching. They see Jeff like sort of smiling. And so as soon as Mr. Self-Righteous hit the highway, I said to guys, what's this government program in California? And so we, we had a giant warehouse in City of Industry. They may still have one there as far as far I know. And when you fly into City of Industry, which has its own airport, you can see nothing but white roof as far as your eye can go, except you could always find the Timberland Warehouse in the early days because it was literally a giant solar collector paid for, by the way, by the Republic of California taxpayers, the Socialist Republic of California. <laughs> but as a CEO, I got solar energy to power my thing. Grace of, 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 of Pasadena, like, I'll take it. Thank you very much. And I got to meet Governor Schwarzenegger. That, that was cool, sort of. Federalism but, at its best. Did you? But, but, but there was an example of open sourced. We, we, we were out in the world. I'll say one last word about that. We did publish a CSR report, but I was really, I was learning Gemara in these days, Talmud those days. And so uh, I'd begun to. So I had now understood something I didn't know about printing, about folio, about recto and verso, about uh, there's a, there's a, yeah, I don't know what the right word is. It's an amud here and an amud there makes a dot. Page here and a page there makes one two-sided page. Which is, is a coherent unit, right? Yeah. So I, I told the Timberland team, we're doing our social responsibility report like the Babylonian Talmud. And they're like, that makes about as much sense as anything you'll say. So can you tell us what to do? I said, yes, I want you to print the right-hand side and leave the left-hand side blank. And they said, that's a waste of paper. I said, no, 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 no. I meant you don't write the left-hand side. I want you to, whatever is the issue on the right-hand side, environmental stuff, corporate volunteerism, I want you to go find somebody who is a competitor or a critic and give them the other page. And my rule is simple. If they say things that are not fair or, or that are not factual, we'll leave it blank. We'll say this place intentionally blank because we couldn't get a, an honest critic. But I went to Schuenard at Patagonia, the founder of Schuenard, and I said, I know you don't think we do enough for the environment. Here's what I'm writing on my side of the page about what Timberland did. The left-hand side of the page is yours. Wow, that's amazing. And he said, you're out of your mind. And he's a tough guy. And I said, just if you say things that aren't true, I won't print it. And he said, oh, no, I'll stay way inside it true. <laughs> and so he did. And you know what the reaction of the consumer was? Shame on you for not doing these things he said. And, and my reaction was, you're making your difference in the world. Like, you're going to hold us accountable for a higher standard of environmentalism? Like, you know, organic cotton. We weren't using organic cotton. Yvonne said, you heathen, you destroyer of the universe. Okay. So we blended in some organic cotton. And I went down to Walmart and pitched David Glass on why he ought to use organic cotton. And they did. That was the power of, of inviting of them. Business. Stop yelling. Come talk to me. If you got a suggestion, like give it a shot because I have self-interest to listen. I love that. You coined the phrase, you told it to me, doing some work I was doing, market caps close social gaps. So you got finished with Timberland and you started investing. And you've even made some successful investments. What are some of them? <laughs> I hope Rise Up is one I'll of them. Rise Up too. Yeah. LPs hope rise up is as well. Amen. Look, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that you don't know. I follow you. I, you're, you are the Oh, come on. Best. You were a good investor before you met me, and I've only taken you down since then. I was in a single stock for 30 years. That's not a very sophisticated investor. But you're a man of belief. Yeah. So do you invest behind this notion of market caps, create, close social gaps? Yeah. You it, continue to. I believe that that is 
that, that every single dollar of our wealth we should be deploying that way. Market against companies whose mission is to create massive market caps and as as in through the process of creating market caps, they will close social gaps. So you've been in the Oval Office. You've been in rooms with politicians and powerful people. You've seen how the sausage is made to use Churchill's famous line. You've also hung around uh, the horses and the social entrepreneurs. Where do you feel more comfortable? When I look around and I ask myself, like, where do I want to be? Uh, uh, with who do I want to be? I want to be with with people who are uh, Teddy Roosevelt in the game against this notion. And every person I mentioned was a, was a social gaps person. But what you taught me and what I can to do believe in the deepest way is Yuval Summit's in that category too. And Roy Adler is going to be in that category too. And Daniel Schreiber lives that. And Daniel Schreiber, CEO of Lemonade. Roy Adler's uh, now the CEO of Santa. And Yuval Summit again is the CEO of Rise Up. Yeah. At Yonatan Adiri at Healthy IO. It's about human beings who believe that the generative force of the marketplace can cure human pain and suffering, can create redemptive possibility. Those are the people that I want to be with. And how does it make you feel to be in the Oval Office or the Prime Minister's office? My fears and insecurities are so profound, it's funny. Um, you know, I, like, how long can you go without breathing? <laughs> A whole Oval Office visit. I, President Clinton was pretty funny. He, he got me to relax. President Bush was, was, was a, I mean, all due respect, a better host in the sense of like, it was just easier to be with a guy. Um, and I think he was a genuinely, genuinely good guy. Mr. President Reagan, I met in the Oval. He was, I was a little kid. He was pretty intimidating. President Bush won, relatively patrician, but I knew him as he got older. My favorite president in that narrow sense was, was, was President Bush II. Um, because with President Bush II, you could actually think you were having a conversation. And uh, with President Clinton, you just had to hold your breath because he's a, He's a, he's a polymath. And so you just don't talk. Try, try to avoid being called on by a question. But how do you feel there? I feel there, I told you this, I have this like one second thought, like what is Nathan Swartz's grandson doing here now? Like, like who made me queen? What am I doing here? And it scares the heck out of me because I don't believe you're there by coincidence. I believe you're there, somehow it's related to, to this mission of the redemptive challenge of the human race and like so do you want to take a picture put it on your mantle no it's like you better take a shot you better take a shot it's like oh, i love I'm, that don't take a picture take a shot on goal that's right i love that in an era where everyone's taking selfies to show you were in there i was there oh yeah great what did take you do a there? shot on goal take I a shot on that goal. i kind of think that's what investing is like which is you get a, you get a bunch of shots on goal some of them work out, some of them don't. Most of them don't them. in my business, but you at least take the shot. You take them. It's from the play of Hamilton also, right? Yeah, that's true. I don't know how to sing it well, but- well, you know, Just I, as well. You want me to sing it? I, they want me to sing it. They embarrass myself. It's, I won't, what is it? I'm I won't so, miss that shot? I'm not- I will I'm not. not going to not take that shot or something like that. Yeah. But I can't sing. I'm totally tone deaf. Talk about insecurities. That's really? a big one. Oh, man. I, I would give anything to be able to sing something. You're a good davener. Yeah, yeah, but I and no, I yeah, yeller. I, it's uh, my kids get a good laugh every Friday night when we sing songs around the table. It's it's the entertainment. It's not because of the song. It's because of off key dad. That's how you keep them engaged. Maybe that might be one way to say. It. So you wrote an article in the Sapir Journal um, called "Philanthropy Is Not Enough." <laughs> it is a fantastic piece. Anyone listening to this, go go look it up. Philanthropy is not enough. 
And so what's the difference between philanthropy in which lots of families, foundations, trusts are engaged in, and the Hebrew word tzedakah, uh, which is uh, the Jewish form kind of, but not a philanthropy. What, what's the difference? To me, it's as simple as this. Philanthropy feels to me, with all its goodness, as a uh, self-driven notion, and staka is commanded. It, it is, and the, the fundamental difference is you could imagine that it's yours as a philanthropist, and you can't imagine it's yours in the context of staka. Uh, at least that's how I, f- I frame it in my mind. I f- we use language in our family of this is lent to us, and we owe on this. We owe a return on this. We, it's not ours. And my grandfather used to say this. He, he, he said money, he used to say, he didn't have any money. He, he was, he went bust twice. He was, a, he was, mama, she was like a, a shetaka. He was feet on the ground. Never, there was no illusions in my grandfather. He said money's a tool. Boots on streets. Boots on streets. He says use money as a tool for good. It's, it's, it's a piece of paper. Or, or it can be it can be noble. It's not yours. It's 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 specie. How do you use it? What? So very nice, and I I learned that from him. Staka to me is 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 an is a religious imperative, and uh, the the is it a human imperative or a religious imperative? Tough one. There's a there's a an ambiguous phrase, a hard to understand phrase. The Ramban Nachmanides says that. Uh, God told Moses to give people a moral and civic framework to operate in. Uh, and, and he makes the argument that even before sacred text is revealed, even before the Torah is revealed to the Jews, they're told that it's that you need to operate with a, with a moral compass. And on its face, that can be disconcerting. It was at first very disconcerting to me. Um, and, a, and a friend made it simple for me. Uh, he said... Um, your moral compass isn't a human invention. It's a, it, it, that is B'Tselem looking. That's the godly spark that's given to you, that you have a moral compass. And so if you get in your own way and you can, dis, you can distort it, you can overwhelm its magnetic field. So I think Staka is a religious and a human, but I don't think those are separate points. You also wrote in the article that Sadaka comes sort of tzedek, which means justice. And there's a commandment, tzedek, tzedek, your dove, justice, justice, you shall run after. Pursue, that's you right. You should pursue. Right. And uh, is there a difference between philanthropy that is based on giving, almost voluntary giving, and the need to pursue justice? Yeah, because um, I, I'm over my pay grade, so you can laugh. But I think the fact that the, the, the verse says pursue justice has a built-in, it's, it's an amazing message. It doesn't say achieve justice. It, because it, it's telling you that's divine. Human is to pursue. It's not yours to give. It's not yours to solve. It's yours to pursue. There is an insistence in the framework of the pursuit of justice that he, that it's it's not um, a gentle humility. It's a fundamental humility. You don't have truth. You you're the the richest guy in town. You're the you have all these funds that you can just. Dis- bestow out of your goodness, please do that. Better that you do that than you don't do that. But that is very different than subject, than, than, than second yourself to a system of justice because the system of justice is not yours to control. A philanthropist can 
the, that's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. And, and we see in organized Jewish life, we see in organized communal life all over the world that moral authority correlates too often in social power to who's rich and who's not rich. And that's just, that's intellectually not a consistent point. If you have $10 million to invest in tzedakah or in a for-profit enterprise where market gaps, caps, close social gaps, where are you putting the money? It's a hard one. Uh, in our family, we talk about uh, two imperatives. One is to serve and the other is to pursue solutions. Because my dad's a big believer in please don't talk to me about solutions. He's hungry. Give him a sandwich. That is not a solution, but that is a human moral imperative. Feed him. And I say, okay, so we have to, we have to bifurcate or we have, to, we have to allocate between serve and solve. My passion without fail, and, and in the narrow sense I'm embarrassed by this, um, is, to, is to pursue solution. It, it, so I would vastly prefer, vastly prefer to invest in the for-profit company whose market cap will close the social gap. Why I'm embarrassed by that is because there is something magnificently humble, magnificently human, fundamental. I've seen you do it. And I'm not trying to embarrass you where you answer the door and you give the hungry person something. Yeah, but that, that, uh, I'm asking you to allocate $10 million as a, as a investor, Sadaka guide. We won't call you a philanthropist because I know you hate that. Thank you. You can only allocate it to one spot. Where are you allocating it? I want to invest in a CEO who's going to fix the food chain and feed the hungry as a result. And make it scalable. Uh, fix the food chain, the, the, the most broken value chain on earth. 50% of all the food that's grown in the world is thrown away and people are hungry. You, you don't have enough money as a philanthropist or even as a Baltstaka. You can't feed the hungry by, by reallocating the crumbs at the edge of, of the society. You build me a hundred million, hundred billion dollar market cap company that converts food waste into food to feed the hungry. Hungry people will be fed and you and I can go to the Riviera, which neither of us want to do. Right. For, for anybody listening, by the way, there's a $10 million check waiting for anyone who can solve the food chain problem and get all that food in a for-profit way back into hungry people's Miles, by the way, we should point out, you know, Roland Fryer, our, our mutual friend, has uh, investment uh, in a company called Forage, uh, which has kind of digitized the ability to accept food stamps. You know, more than feeding the hungry, even in that case, he's attaching them to the digital economy. Spectacular. Which is a, is a spectacular thing. So I want to move to our rapid fire uh, questions. But before I get there, it was the notorious B.I.G. once said, Tim's for my hooligans in Brooklyn is a line from some rap song, which I wouldn't know because I'm both tone deaf and don't listen to music. <laughs> uh, certainly, and, and not rap. So Tupac apparently wore Timberlands. Do you have any idea how you got these guys to wear Timberlands? No. Uh, Come on, you must. Honestly and truthfully, um, this was this is the original conversation in our space, our in our in our industry called crossover. Now that's a that's a that is post facto rationalization. What it really means is you did not understand nor show respect to consumers who weren't your target audience. So we weren't making. If you asked me, what are we doing? Who did we have an avatar for Timberland? Like, who are you building this product for? We did. Is it a 16 year old kid in, in, in New York city? I would have said no. And yet if you, if you had, if you had been maybe making fewer speeches, Jeff, and paying more attention to the marketplace, you would have seen not a trend. You'd have seen a, a relative explosion of consumer demand that correlates rap music and rap music consumer with, with Timberland boots and you know, shame on you, Mr. Brand Builder, that you had no clue it was going on until long after it was going on. You had no idea how cool you were. 
which is the, which is a, you know, that's a, that's an argument that circles. <laughs> I had no idea because I wasn't I and I ain't and I ain't ever gonna be cool. And but that was a that was a colossal failure of arrogance uh, on my part. And I lost track. I didn't lose track. I didn't I didn't have my finger on on the consumer the way I should have. How does it feel when you see Timberland ads now? Kills me to be honest. Makes you nostalgic at all or no? No, it makes me it it it, it uh, today. <laughs> There was a, an earthquake, tumbler, rumbler thing at one of these big buildings, and so everyone went running. I wasn't smart enough, but I took the elevator down. It was at Azraeli, and I came outside with my middle son, who is uh, is a force, and and he. It's a rainy day here in Tel Aviv, which is an unusual circumstance, and so there was a fair amount of timberland on the street, and and Sam said to me, "What do you think?" And I said, "I'm trying not to see it," and he said, "No, but it's kind of cool," and I said, "It it's like." Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, and I I can barely keep my feet on the path that I'm on. And when I look at that one, I I, I have fear. Like, did I do the right thing? Did I uh, I, I you have FOMO? Is it fear of missing out? It's fear of it, no. I would have different initials. Fear <laughs> of not doing what you're supposed to do. What does that turn into? Okay, photo. Speaking of that, by the way, you're not on social media. Why not? I was on social media, like when Twitter was invented, I, I, I was, I had 10,000 followers for my, my Twitter account. And that was like the bee's knees. Cause they were all environmentalists that we, and we wrote funny things. And I did a tweet from the Obama white house that almost got me thrown into a, into a ditch. You like to run into secret service people. I mean, oh, hundred miles an hour. Nice job. I came, I came out of the men's room in the Eisenhower office building Okay, I have to tell the truth because it's you could find it, I suppose, because nothing can be hidden. We're having this conversation. There was two nuclear power guys, Valerie Jarrett and me, and some reasonably lunatic guy from the, the very fringe left. And we're talking about the climate legislation that the Obama administration was going to pursue. And I was so frustrated because we were seeing the sausage being made. This is over my pay grade. So I took my suit and my BlackBerry to the men's room, not in defiance, but in, you know, the exigency was real. And I'm standing there and we're just having this big debate about emissions. And uh, and so this was not Howard Schultz's fifth floor uh, at Starbucks in the corporate headquarters. We have those uh, waterless urinals because Starbucks is worried about water. This is one where, okay, you hear this sound of like a jet engine and you think the Potomac just <laughs> fell by four inches. And so I tweeted from the men's room of the Eisenhower executive building, working on climate change in the Obama administration. And I think I just emptied out the Potomac. And so the poor woman who was the person when I came out of that meeting, she's like, Give me your device. <laughs> Give me your device. And I thought, oh, what is now you're supposed to do? She said, No, no, I've got a job. I've got children to feed. Go away. So I did. I had a. I had that. I Donald had, Trump wasn't the first guy to have his phone taken away from him in the White House. <laughs> That's hysterical. Oh, yo, yo. Uh, so why aren't you on social media? I, I. <laughs> you're so good at it. Oh yeah. I here here I ex, I express my my um, my. Um, one one of my many weaknesses. I fear that. Um, uh, I, I believe in this notion of, of of accountability, and I think that um, participating on social media platforms, when you can point to uh, things like uh, young teenage girls' uh, suicide rates changing because of technology, I. I have granddaughters. I, I don't know what to do about that. So I don't want to be one of the yellers because I don't know what to do about that. And I don't believe Meta cares that I don't have a Facebook account or an Instagram. I don't think they care. They're so big that 
that my starfish I'm not on Facebook doesn't change their stock price. And so I don't yell about it because I don't know what to do about it. But I can't at the same time. You don't I, want to be a participant. I don't. I feel like you I think it's not good. I do think it's not good. Okay. I hear that. I don't know if it's true. I just. I don't either. Uh, I think we'll only know in a hundred years. Yeah. That scares me too. So having said that, my assumption is that the problem in the world you most want to fix is actually hunger. Is that fair? Or is there something bigger? Like, what's the problem you most want to fix? I shouldn't put words in your mouth. Oh, that's a really hard question. I would change the incentive structure around it to go fix it. Yeah. I think I could, I, I think I could be safe in that one. I don't know. Okay. If, so now step out of your safe zone. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. And you're going to try and push me to be a better man than I am. I, 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 I don't, I, I think maybe this will, uh, surprise, uh, nobody but me. I, I actually think that um, the thing that worries me the most is that um, people aren't equipped to make their difference. And I think that is that people don't know how to learn anymore. I, I, I think th that, uh, and I can personalize that and say we live in an age where there's more information than there's ever been Jewishly in the world and there's never been more illiterate Jewish generation than this one. But that sounds particularist, and it may even sound uh, like you know, a universities. People haven't read the classic texts and the kind of important foundations of democracy and, and capitalism, they, and they don't know how to learn. You you know how to do this, and I'm I still don't. And some of it's language skill, but this this famous notion of an unseen, where you put a kid, a, a student, a young learner in front of a text a Talmudic text and that he's not seen before. And you open up to this page and it's a subject matter that he's not versed in. And he, he knows or she knows how to look at the text and operate the tools that are, 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 that are on the page. They look like two-dimensional squiggles if you don't know how to use them, but they know how methodologically to unpack an unknown. And we live in an age where the unknowns are spreading out faster than the knowns. Meaning, isn't it cool that we know how to do this? Yes, but we're about to go to Mars. And isn't it cool that we're, the Hubble telescope can show us things we haven't seen before? Yes, but what are you going to do with that? And why do we need to know how to cope with unknowns? Because the, back to this point about the delamination, the social delamination, we, we, we know how to pass a law from 100 years ago but we don't know how to regulate technology. And, and I don't mean in a handcuff way. I don't, we don't have, a, we can't have a conversation about it. And because we don't know how to learn, I think we've lost, you said this before, we're losing the ability to have a conversation. And that to me is, it's ancient point. It's Erchin, right? A generation that can't give rebuke, a generation that can't take rebuke. Okay, then what is a generation? How's a generation gonna have a conversation? We, if we lost the ability to learn, and we don't have the ability to create a language of learning, I, I, that is anti-redemptive. I love that, by the way. I think one of the things about being a venture capitalist is exactly that, which is I'm forced to learn a new thing uh, every couple of years because the world of technology changes so quickly. I think one of the powers of technology is it forces everybody out of their comfort zone. Some choose to kind of be pulled along, but if you can actually grasp it um, or spend the time finding the language, developing the language. I, I'm fond of saying that I have to learn the 10 most important words in each new area of technology mean, and then I can have a conversation with an expert who can kind of escalate my learning curve, uh, get me there faster. I, I think that's foundational. And I agree with you. I, I, this is a big worry. I think perhaps part of the kind of arm wrestle politics we're in now is because people can't learn new things to have new conversations on different fields to try to solve problems. 
I want to ask you a couple of hard questions, which is what we do at the end of this podcast. It, this is not kind of for the, you know, the frivolous. How do you want to be remembered at the end of your life after 120, as they say here? I think I want, I never, I haven't thought about that. I, I would love for Debbie and our kids and their kids, you know, how, however that spreads out in, in time, how much time God gives me to create relationship. But I would, I would like them to know that I love them. Uh, that's how I'd like to be remembered as the guy that loved them. And by the world, you don't care. No. So in a hundred years, somebody's going to write a biography of Jeff Swartz. <laughs> what should the title be? <laughs> what are you laughing about? I think this is actually going to happen. It might happen soon in a hundred years, but if in a hundred years they're right, a biography, um, too many words, lots of dreams, and a question mark, like, you know, and so, so what? I don't know. Too many words. I talk too damn much. Uh, uh, lots of dreams. I, 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 I do dream hard. Uh, and you know, what's that amount to who knows? Uh, and in a narrow sense, who cares? The, the, the much larger point is like, and you taught me this, who do you love and who loves you back? Um, that's the biggest force multiplier that there could ever be. And if you believe in the redemptive possibility, it, um, my job is to fertilize the redemptive possibility. So, just to finish, the title of the podcast is called Invested. What are you most invested in? The very few people that I love. That's great. Including you. I'm honored. It's true. I'm honored and touched. And I'm going to tear up. Don't. I'm telling you the truth and you knew it. Jeff, thanks for agreeing to do this. I know it's not easy for you to agree to come do this. I really appreciate you doing this for me. Um, and... Uh, to our listeners, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we need help with distribution of this podcast because Jeff is not on social media. <laughs> so thanks for coming.